Good morning. As has already been said, we're appreciative of everyone's presence this morning, and uh, hope that something I have to say will be beneficial to all of us. I think I've mentioned this before, but I have a, a folder on my phone where I try to keep little notes of, of sermon ideas. Uh, I read a phrase in the Bible that I think would make a catchy title or read an illustration or comparison that really stands out to me, or I read a list that I think would naturally make a good outline. And earlier this year, as I was reading through the books of the Old Testament prophets, I made several notes of things that caught my attention. Problem was that none of them seemed to be, to me, enough to, to flesh out into a full sermon. And so I thought about using them when we would have our round-robin services or for a short service before a singing practice, some occasion that just called for a short five-to-minute talk. But as I was looking over my notes to decide on a topic for this morning's lesson, I just kept coming back to several statements made by the prophet Ezekiel. So this morning I've decided to combine uh, four of those ideas into one sermon. Now these topics may or may not be uh, related at all. And so you can think of this as four separate sermons or maybe just one lesson with four acts, if you will. Um, you don't like all four of them, maybe you'll like at least one of them. But, but I hope, as I said, that we can all gain something from considering these thoughts. Well, let me begin by, with a little background uh, information about Ezekiel. And I won't go into too much detail because uh, Brother Nate has been going through a series uh, periodically on Wednesday nights where he does an overview of a book of the Bible. He's gotten through Ecclesiastes, and I'm guessing that he'll be coming to Ezekiel here in just a few months. And so I'll let him fill in the details. Uh, but let me at least give a, a brief summary. Ezekiel is considered one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. That simply means that his book is longer than those that are considered the minor prophets. Uh, Ezekiel is, a, is unique in that he was both a prophet and also a priest, according to Ezekiel 1 and verse 3. And that, apply, that implies, rather, that he was from the priestly family of Aaron. The setting of his book uh, begins somewhere around the, the year 597 B.C. Uh, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon besieged, besieged Judah and took captive. Uh, the king of Judah at that time was Jehoiakim. So he took captive of the king along with uh, his royal officials and his warriors and his craftsmen. In fact, we're told in all a total of 10,000 of the most important people of Judah uh, were taken captive. They were taken prisoner and deported to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar replaced Jehoiakim with his uncle, who he renamed Zedekiah, as king over Judah. We can read of these events in 2 Kings, the 24th chapter, and also 2 Chronicles 36. Well, Ezekiel, the priest, was among those who was taken to Babylon. Daniel was another uh, major prophet who was also taken and as you may recall, Daniel was held captive in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel, however, it seems, was allowed to live in his own house there in Babylon. And around the fifth year of his captivity, Ezekiel began to prophesy, and he did so for about 22 years. His prophecies reminded God's people of their sad condition and why they were there, what had brought about uh, their condition, their own apostasy but also foretold both the downfall of the kingdom of Judah, the further downfall, Jerusalem's destruction, and then finally the restoration of the kingdom. 
Well, as I said, that's a very brief summary of, of who Ezekiel was and, and what he wrote about. But, but let's move on and let's notice the first of the four lessons that we want to notice from this great prophet. The first lesson that I want to notice is one that, I'll entitled, that I will entitle, Walls Smeared with Whitewash. And this comes from an illustration that Ezekiel uses in chapter 13. He's condemning their false prophets who have misled the people. As we said, Ezekiel was commissioned to prophesy to God's people who had been carried away captive to Babylon. But back home, back in Judah, in fact, in the city of Jerusalem, it had not yet fallen. Its city walls were still standing to protect it. But in chapters 4 through 7, God, through Ezekiel, warned the captives that the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians was imminent. Zedekiah, as we said, Nebuchadnezzar had put him in office, but he was not a good king, as many of the kings of Judah had not been. Not only did he do evil in the sight of the Lord, but he also rebelled against Babylon, against the people who had put him into office, according to 2 Kings 24, verses 19 and 20. And so it wouldn't be long before Babylon would retaliate and would burn down Jerusalem, including the temple, and would tear down the walls of the city. Again, we can read of this in 2 Kings 25. So this was a warning here that the prophet was trying to give in the early chapters of Ezekiel. Well, as we said, false prophets uh, had arisen, and they were contradicting Ezekiel with quite a different message. They were saying instead that peace was going to soon come for God's people. And so in Ezekiel, the 13th chapter, verses 2 and 3, God says, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. These prophets were saying, Here's what God has spoken to us. God is saying, I haven't spoken to them. What they're saying it didn't come from me. And he goes on in verse 6 to say, They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. God declares that they have spoken nonsense and that He is against them. And then He explains in verses 10 and 11, Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge, deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. Continuing in verse 14, And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. Now, there's some literal language here, speaking of walls. As we said, Jerusalem's walls would literally fall. 
But also there's some figurative language speaking of the walls of peace, so to speak, that these false prophets had built up. These false prophets were persuading God's people to, to have hope in their message of peace, much like a city would, would hope in its city walls for protection from the enemy. But as God describes, trusting in the false prophet's message was like trusting in city walls that had been smeared with whitewash. Other versions say plastered with untempered mortar. And I don't want to get too uh, far into the details of construction materials here. In fact, there's some debate as to the exact ancient construction material and method that's being referred to here. But, but regardless, I think the message is clear. The exterior walls of a city, or even a home, uh, were built with, with large stones or bricks. And then they were further strengthened by using what would be called tempered mortar. Some kind of adhesive material, um, sometimes it was made of clay, sometimes lime, sometimes straw might have been mixed in with it. But something that had gone through a tempering process, which simply means that water had been added and it was brought to the proper consistency so that it could harden and so that it could keep those large stones and that wall held together properly. Such a well-built wall could withstand rain and storm and hail and even attacks by opposing armies. Untempered mortar or whitewash um, was sometimes used on interior walls. This is much like what we might call today uh, plaster or maybe even paint, sheetrock mud. Think of it that way. It could be rubbed on, on the interior walls, which were usually made of smaller stones, but it could be rubbed on them and rubbed smooth and made to look really attractive in appearance. But it was mainly cosmetic. It was not expected to protect against the elements. It was certainly not made to protect against attack. Imagine if we were building a city wall to protect against attack of an army and somebody said, hey, let's put some paint on that and protect it. Or hey, let's spread some sheet rock mud on that to protect it. That's not going to make it any stronger, is it? In fact, in the original language, uh, this idea of untempered had come to mean something that's inferior or frivolous or flimsy. And Ezekiel uses this to symbolize the work of the false prophets. They had built up stories and they'd made them sound believable. But in fact, they were flimsy and unreliable. Well, what's the lesson for us today? I think it's a, a universal truth that we don't enjoy hearing bad news. In Ezekiel's day, God's people didn't want to hear about how their beloved Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by the Babylonians because of their sin. And so they were easily persuaded by false prophets who instead promised them peace. Well, today our world as a whole does not want to hear the bad news about sin or judgment or eternal punishment. And so people are easily persuaded by false teachers who promise peace and prosperity or who focus on the love and the mercy of God, which are certainly true aspects of His character, but they ignore His justice and His demand for obedience. False prophets are just as much a danger today as they were in Ezekiel's day. And the New Testament is filled with such warning. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 7 and 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he went on wolves. He went on to say that 
they could be recognized by their fruits. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and 30 that from among your own selves, notice, Christians, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. To the Corinthian church, Paul warned of false teachers appearing as ministers of righteousness, even as Satan appears as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. To Timothy, Paul warned that the time was coming when people would not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. We can read similar cautions from Peter and from John and from Jude. And all of these should serve as a warning, uh, first of all, to those who do teach and preach. We need to make sure that our teaching is always based on a thus saith the Lord. Like those false prophets, don't pretend like you're saying something that came from God if it did not, in fact, come from Him. Uh, we can't just teach what everyone wants to hear. But this is also an alert to all of us as listeners because we have the responsibility not just to or to not just believe and follow everything we hear we must weigh it against God's word we are blessed to have God's word in written form and so when we hear something that is claimed to be from God we can weigh that against God's word and make sure that it's true as 1 John 4 and verse 1 prescribes do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. I'm sure there's much more that we could say this morning about false prophets, but let's move on to our, our next lesson. Next, we're going to go to chapter 14. And uh, by the way, Ezekiel 14 actually contains several interesting phrases. I had several written down in my notes, and a couple of those um, I've actually already brought lessons on in the recent past. For example, in verses 3 through 7 there of Ezekiel 14, at least three times he refers to those who would put stumbling blocks in front of themselves. As I said a couple of months ago, I think, uh, we took a closer look at, at that ridiculous picture of a runner who would spend all of that time and effort to prepare for a race, and then right before the race starts, go out on the track and put obstacles in his own lane for himself to trip over. How ridiculous that would be. But just as silly as that sounds, it's no less foolish for us as Christians to set ourselves up for failure in the Christian race by putting ourselves in situations, putting stumbling blocks in front of our way that we know are likely to tempt us and cause us to fall. Whether that's hanging out with the wrong people, choosing the wrong job or career, picking the wrong forms of entertainment, whatever the case might be, when we do these things and set ourselves up for these things that we know are going to tempt us, really we become our own worst enemy, spiritually speaking. Another phrase that we've noticed before is actually repeated four times here in chapter 14. Uh, the first of those is found in verse 14. But, but after promising that His judgment would be certain on the land, God says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, were in the land, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. And the message there is that, that these three men, who he holds up as examples of righteousness, they 
could only answer for themselves. Their righteousness would only save themselves. It would not be transferred to others. Each person must answer for his or her own actions. Well, for today, the lesson that I want to notice from uh, this chapter from Ezekiel is one that I will entitle Persistent Unfaithfulness. And that's found in Ezekiel 14 and verse 13, at least in the New King James Version, where Ezekiel says there, Son of man, when a land, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. It's interesting how other versions uh, put this phrase here. Some say uh, being unfaithful, acting faithlessly, committing a trespass. I like, though, what Burton Kaufman uh, says in his commentary. He says, trespass, it seems, is far too mild a word for this strong Hebrew term. It concerns high treason and the crime of acting treacherously. It was no ordinary trespass or sin that resulted in the kind of destruction God was bringing upon Jerusalem. It was, in fact, persistent unfaithfulness. Now, as I said, I like what he has to say there, but I also probably uh, need to, to explain. Please don't understand. I don't believe that there is such a thing as an ordinary sin, as he says. There are no little sins or, or big sins. Any transgression of God's will and His law is worthy of punishment. But I think the warning here is that once we commit the first sin, it will very likely lead to another. And if we do not repent and make things right and correct our ways, then before we know it, we too might find ourselves in persistent unfaithfulness. That certainly describes the condition of the people of God in Ezekiel's day. Time and again, they had fallen into idolatry. Um, I suppose someone could make the argument that the book of Ezekiel is, is a difficult read because much of the message... Uh, shows God's anger and His judgment against His own people. However, Ezekiel's message also shows us some valuable insight into the heart of God. It helps us to understand the hurt that God must have felt in having His people abandon their faith and, and their love for Him. Ezekiel's prophecies help us to understand perhaps why God was allowing Jerusalem to be destroyed. They had treated God callously. Their hearts had hardened towards Him. They would go and, and worship idols, and then they would come to Ezekiel and say, Hey, what has God said? They would inquire of the Lord, uh, as it says in Ezekiel 14, verses 1 and 3. And God refused to allow His people to treat Him with such disrespect. You know, you and I might, might look at them and their repeated cycle of wickedness, and we might somehow minimize our own, might we say, sporadic sins. But here's the point. Sin, like a drug, is addictive. Maybe you remember hearing Brother Dwayne Permenter say this. I've heard him say it many times. But he always said sin will take you farther, farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. And that's why we must constantly be on guard to keep ourselves 
pure. That's why we need to make our wrongs right as soon as they are recognized. Because if we don't, then our hearts too may become hardened and we may find ourselves in persistent unfaithfulness. Well, next we're going to jump over to chapter 25. And we're going to notice a lesson there that, that will entitle Unrighteous Rejoicing. Starting here in, in chapter 25 and all the way through chapter 32, um, Ezekiel's message kind of shifts from talking to God's people to talking to the nations that surrounded Israel. God's message to these surrounding nations. In fact, God names seven nations against whom he has a bone to pick, as we might say. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. You might notice that Babylon is not included in that list. Even though Babylon had attacked and taken into captive God's people, he does not, at least at this point, pronounce um, a, a judgment against them because God was using them. God was using them as an instrument to deal with disciplining, disciplining his own rebellious people. But these other seven nations that are mentioned here beginning in verse 25, they had had no such calling. God was not using them, but yet they went out of their way in evil schemes and deeds against God's people. And so in chapter 25, Ezekiel starts with the land or the nation of Ammon. Now, ironically, the Ammonites were actually relatives of the Israelites. They were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. In fact, specifically, if you remember that incestuous incident between a drunken Lot and his daughters in Genesis, the 19th chapter, well, the sons that were born to them became the fathers of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And for that reason, because they were, in fact, um, descendants of Abraham, so to speak, God protected them. He uh, told the Hebrews to, to leave the Ammonites alone as they traveled to the promised land, according to Deuteronomy 2 and verse 19. But even though they were blood relatives to the Israelites, the Ammonites turned out to be enemies. On numerous occasions, we can read of them being at odds with the Israelites, even sometimes attacking them. But here in Ezekiel 25, that's not really what God seems to have in mind. He pronounces his retaliation against Ammon, but it's for a different reason. Notice with me uh, verses 1 through 3 of Ezekiel 25. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, Aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile. Continuing in verses 6 and 7, For thus says the Lord God, Because you have clapped your hands, and stamped your feet, and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel, Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations and I will cut you off from the peoples and will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Have you ever watched children play the game King of the Hill? The goal of that game is to basically knock down whoever's at the top. 
And you know, sadly, that's not just a game for kids. We see that same attitude in adults. Anyone who is in a higher position, whether it be wealth or fame or leadership, people like to see them fall, to be knocked off their high horse, so to speak. As a fan of Alabama football, I know what it's like for my team to be hated simply because they've had success in recent years. And I should add that I've been a fan all my life, including the years when they were not so good. But I know what that feels like. And it's really sad, on top of that, though, when people delight in seeing good people make mistakes or fail. Look at old goody two-shoes over there. He's just as guilty as the rest of us. As if seeing them fall somehow soothes their conscience for all the bad things they've done. Well, perhaps that was the case with the Ammonites. In their jealousy and envy, they delighted in seeing God's people, God's chosen people, experience failure. But also seems like there was perhaps a deeper-seated hatred here, not only for God's people, but for God Himself. It says, you said, aha, when my sanctuary was profaned, when the temple was destroyed, they, they laughed. You clapped your hands and stomped your feet and rejoiced over the land of Israel. Again, I think we see here it wasn't just hatred against the, the people of Israel. It was hatred against God. And I think the lesson for us is that we need to be very careful in delighting over the calamity of others. Certainly, we should never rejoice when bad things happen to good people. But let's take it further than that. We shouldn't find joy when bad things happen to bad people either. You know, the Bible is clear that we do not have the right to, to mete out justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And at the same time, we don't have the right to enjoy seeing others be punished. In fact, I think we need to be sure that we don't delight in the sins of others in any respect. And that includes being entertained, being amused by the sinful behavior of others. When we laugh at sin, even if it's not our own, we downplay its seriousness. But sin is certainly serious to God. Serious enough that He was willing to send His Son to remediate it. Well, fourthly and finally, the last lesson from Ezekiel that I'd like to point out this morning is one that I will entitle, A Very Lovely Song. And that's taken from Ezekiel 33, verse 32. Before we read it, though, let me explain the setting here. By now, Ezekiel had been prophesying to God's people for over seven years. And as we've noticed, he clearly warned them that Jerusalem was going to fall to the Babylonians. They didn't seem to believe him. In verse 22, Ezekiel learns that Jerusalem had, in fact, been captured. It had happened. All these prophecies that he had been telling them about, it had finally happened. But word has it that those back in Judah, those who had somehow escaped uh, when the city was uh, attacked, they were still thinking, well, I guess that means that now we get to possess the land for ourselves. Everybody in Jerusalem's dead and it's been destroyed, so now we can come back in and take over the land that, that's ours. They didn't accept God's message. He was trying to send them a message. 
They didn't accept the reality that they had, in fact, lost their inheritance because of their sin. Again, in verses 25 through 29, God tells them that these things that were happening were the consequences of their sin. But meanwhile, back in Babylon, God's people, likewise, were having difficulty, it seems, in actually listening to God's message, getting the message that He was trying to send. So notice here in chapter 33, Verses 30 through 33. God says, As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, Please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. God's people heard God's word through the prophet Ezekiel, but they did not heed God's word. In fact, it appears that they enjoyed listening to what Ezekiel had to say, but they had no desire to apply the prophet's message to their own lives. Ezekiel was to them a very lovely song of one who had a pleasant voice. In other words, they were simply being entertained. Doesn't that sound like an indictment of much of the religious world today? Where so-called worship is clearly focused on entertaining the audience. Even the preaching is little more than feel-good stories and humorous illustrations. But before we're quick to point fingers, let's do a little self-reflection. I wonder how often maybe I've heard a sermon or a lesson from God's Word, and thought, what a nice message, and then walked out that door and failed to apply it to my life. You know, James admonishes us in James, the first chapter. Just a moment here. Um, James, the first chapter, verses 22 through 25, he says, Be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It's great that we enjoy hearing God's word. But it's absolutely essential that we be sure to apply God's Word to our lives. God intends for His Word to have an effect on our lives. In fact, through the prophet Isaiah, he said in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my Word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We need to make sure that when we hear God's Word taught, it accomplishes God's purpose.
Well, before we close this morning, I want to circle back to Ezekiel 14 one more time. That's the chapter where we notice the persistent unfaithfulness of, of God's people. How hurt God must have been that they had abandoned him to the point, as we said, that he would allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. But what I want to point out is that while God had run out of patience, being disrespected by his own people, he still wanted to restore his relationship with them. In Ezekiel 14 and verse 6, God tells Ezekiel, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, turn your faces away from all your abominations. In verse 11, he indicated his desire that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God. Later in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, he tells Ezekiel, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You may remember we've studied before times in the Bible when God repeats himself. And you can almost hear the, the earnest plea in God's voice here as he says, Turn back. Turn back. God's people had a choice to make. Would they turn back to Him and, and seek to restore their relationship with Him? Or would they continue to forsake Him? Well, sadly, Israel chose the latter. They chose to persist in their unfaithfulness, as we've noticed. But you know, that same choice lies with you and me today. God wants to restore the relationship with us that has been broken by sin. <laughs> So much so, as we said, that he sent his son to die in our stead. And so if you believe that this morning, then won't you accept his invitation through faith and repentance, confession and baptism? Or if you've once obeyed that plan, but you have not remained faithful, then as God said, turn back through repentance and confession and prayer. And if we can assist you in any way, we ask that you come forward while we stand and while we sing.